Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I hope that you enjoy listening and that you'll subscribe if you do. If you're a regular listener, please consider sharing the podcast with a friend or leaving a review in any of the many places where podcasts can be found. You can review it in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Facebook, or wherever. Reviews really help to bring the podcast up in the search rankings, and that will help other people find it. Today, I'm talking to Michelle Rose Orn of Swan's Island Yarn. Swan's Island has a really interesting history, beginning as a woven blanket company based on an island off of coastal Maine. It expanded to sell yarn, kits, and commercially knitted items when Michelle joined the team. Their aesthetic is clean and modern, with a focus on craftsmanship and artisans. Swan's Island seems to me like a paragon of what you can produce when you have a team of makers all dedicated to quality and a sense of place. I had the great pleasure of designing with Swan's Island Merino Worsted, which has a bit of a naturally colored alpaca to add a heather to the otherwise merino yarn. The Vinculum cardigan, which is part of my Confluence collection, is one of my favorites to wear when I go through my design samples. It has really great details like a smocking stitch that mirrors at the hem and the cuffs, as well as covering the whole V neckline. And there's a little V in the back as well. And the shoulder pieces are knit as one and then joined to the back piece. It's really fantastic. Um, (laughs) It's one of my favorites. It felt like a natural progression to put so many fine details into a sweater when there was so much thought put into the yarn. So without further ado, let's get to that interview with Michelle. So I'm here with Michelle Rose Orn, Creative Director for Swans Island. Hey, Michelle. Hello, Miriam. How are you? Good. Thanks. You design for Swans Island. What drew you to them as a company? So I live in a very small town on the coast of Maine called Camden. Um, and we moved here years ago when I used to live in New York before that, working in the garment industry. And I uh, used to design and commute back and forth to the garment industry. Mm-hmm. And then once I had kids, that got to be a little bit challenging. Swans Island is a small company that happens to be located right up the street from me. Oh, that's nice. It's very convenient. And there are not a lot of uh, job potential in the garment designing industry in this area. And this <laughs> uh, happened to be right up the street. And I happened to be friends with the owners. And I sort of got involved as a consultant for a little bit. And then things evolved. And I became more involved with the company. That's great. Your designing career, what were you, were you designing ready to wear, knitwear or? So yes, years ago I used to live in New York and I designed uh, ready to wear for the garment industry Mm -hmm. with a knitwear specialty. So I used to travel all over the world to the far East, to factories there and Mm -hmm. um, designed primarily hand knit, but also industrial machine knit sweaters, garments. And on the side of that, I would design hand knitting uh, patterns for the knitwear industry, for the uh, hand knitting industry. Yeah. I'm going to dive into this a little deeper because this is fascinating. Did your experience designing for like machine knitting and commercial knitting influence your your hand knit designs? Yeah, absolutely. And early on, I think I was probably one of the 
earlier people to start designing on a computer. So mm-hmm. this is way back when, yeah. you know, 30 years ago, um, when people didn't really even have desktop computers at their disposal. Yeah, We moved to Maine and I would commute back and forth to Manhattan quite a bit, but I would also uh, do designs literally on large pieces of graph paper and then run yeah. off at the end of the day to send them out via Federal Express, uh, you know, every afternoon meeting the FedEx truck downstairs to send the designs off to the Far East. Yeah. Um, but I think having an understanding of how things were produced in the commercial garment industry certainly had an impact on what I was designing for the hand knitting industry. And also several people or a lot of people that were designing in the garment industry didn't seem to have hand knitting experience per yeah. se. Yeah. So I think it was really handy to have in-depth knowledge of both uh, means of construction um, help both. Yeah, especially if you're if you're having people hand knit sweaters, you know, if if part of the production chain is people hand knitting and not just machine knitting, then understanding hand knitting seems very important. Yes, absolutely. And at that time, I'll I'll tell you, there was a period in my uh, design career for about five years where I literally designed nothing but what are today known as ugly Christmas sweaters. That's my <laughs> claim to fame. But. Uh, <laughs> Ugly Christmas sweaters that you see on uh, eBay or, you know, oh, man. Uh, popping back up at parties now. So I'll look back and go, oh, yep, I designed that one. I designed wow. that one. That's going to so. be really interesting. How, like, Because, uh, you know, as a as a handed designer, I see somebody, you know, wearing something that I design and I'm like, yay. But like, you've got such a deep history with this. That's really fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so I've been through many iterations from the, you know, K-Facet and Tarja craze. Oh, God. In 80s when everything was picture sweaters and complex multicolor yeah. designs, which I did a lot of back then, yeah. to nowadays, you know, having absolutely zero interest in doing that kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, designing for a company like Swan's Island, where I'm trying to, you know, influence the, the design direction of yeah. that company, um, has a completely, obviously, very different feel than yeah, uh, totally different ugly aesthetic. Christmas sweaters of the 80s. So yeah. designer this long, you uh, you come full circle and yeah. have touched That's on true, a lot yeah. of different techniques. Well, and like, you know, oversized sweaters are coming back. You know, like there's 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 a whole different aesthetic that Swans Island has. So how would you describe the aesthetic that you're building? I think the the Swans Island aesthetic is um, clean, classic, Mm -hmm. modern. Yeah. Um, You know, that was the aesthetic of the company when I came into it. When I joined the company, it really was a blanket company and it was called Swans Island Blankets. Um, And the history of that company, it was founded by a couple that moved from Boston to an actual island off the coast of Maine called Swans Island. And they wanted a different uh, lifestyle. They wanted to leave the rat race behind. So they left their careers as attorneys and they taught themselves how to weave and how to hand dye using all natural dyes. And so they started this little business um, where he wanted to emulate very traditional old style blankets that he had known growing up yeah. on the coast of Maine, kind of very classic, simple, I would say almost a shaker kind yeah, of. Yeah, it's definitely got that aesthetic for sure. So just really clean. And, you know, it's it's got a modern aesthetic as well. It is mm-hmm. traditional looking, but it's not uh, country traditional looking. It's yeah. got a very sophisticated aesthetic. Yeah. And so when I joined the company, it was really to help develop a yarn division. At that time, they were only doing blankets and they, you know, would have people occasionally stop in and ask if they could purchase the yarn because oh, cause they like the way the right. yarn felt for the blankets and all that. Right. Yeah. right. And the yarn has, it's all hand dyed and it, at that time it was only dyed with all natural dyes. We've expanded since then, but yeah. the original product line was done with all natural dyes and knitters were expressing interest in it. And that's when I came into the company when uh, my friend 
is an owner in the company and I'm also now an owner in the company, but that's that great. he requested if, you know, I had any input in, into the hand knitting world. I yeah. Said, well, I knew a few things about that I've been in it for quite <laughs> a few years. So that's, that's really how the yarn line came into being. Um, that's great. So Swan's Island sells blankets, pillows, and then apparel like scarves and hats. Um, but all of them, all of the products share a focus on handcrafting and artisanship and that shaker aesthetic, like you said. So are all the fibers dyed in Maine? So yes, all of our fibers are dyed in Maine. That's one of the things that really makes us unique. Yeah. I think um, what we realized was that when we were first uh, doing what I was describing as just the blanket line, we literally were dyeing on a porch at mm-hmm. our our, our uh, Corporate headquarters is actually a 1790s farmhouse. Oh, I bet that's gorgeous. So it's it's not very corporate. I'm yeah. It's tiny, um, but it's a lovely little farmhouse, and that's where we do our weaving production as well as all our yarn dyeing production. That's great. And originally, we were literally, you know, in two small pots on a stove on a porch at this little house. And then when we decided we were going to get more into the yarn business, we built our own dye house at the back of that facility. Yeah. Um, so much, much larger operation, still yeah. small and everything's still handcrafted. But yeah, so we do all our own dyeing, which is unique. You know, yeah. many other yarn companies send out their yarns to be dyed at commercial dye houses. So yeah. it gives us opportunity to be pretty flexible um, and to develop some new techniques. Kind of have, We have fun playing yeah. around in our test kitchen coming up with new ideas that's awesome so the fibers that are in the yarns come from a few different places you've got the merinos coming from south america so we have our natural colors collection which is still dyed with all natural plant-based dyes Mm -hmm. is an organic merino we do have a washable i'll tell you about that one in a minute the organic merino that's done with natural dyes comes from south america so it's a certified gots certified organic merino and we do get that Um, from farms in South America through our spinnery, which is based in Maine. So the fibers coming from abroad, but then everything else, the spinning and the dyeing is all done in Maine. Um, and we have another collection, which is called our Washable Wool Collection, which is not superwash. It's actually got a um, trademarked, patented process, which we call eco-wash. Okay. Um, but it's also a certified organic compound that is applied to the yarn. It's very different than superwash. Okay. Yeah, superwash. We've talked about superwash in a previous episode um, about stripping the cuticle from the fiber, and that's what the superwash process does. So this is a coating that just basically makes the cuticle a moot point. It kind of coats it so that when it's it's an enzyme that helps almost make the wool sticky when it goes through the wash, for lack okay. of a better term. So it doesn't. Okay. So it stays, it in, stays place. in place. So it's got less friction causing less felting. Yeah. So yeah, the superwash cool. actually coats the fibers with almost kind of a plastic coating to keep them from felting as well as stripping off the scales. And, yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of different processes. Yeah. So this is a little gentler. It leaves the scales intact, but it just keeps the fibers from rubbing uh, when they're through the wash. That's great. You know, keeping the fibers intact means that you'd have a more toothsome wool. You'd still have, you know, you'd still have the like memory, the bounce. Yes. It's a very, uh, that, uh, that fiber is very bouncy. I'd almost dare say it's bouncier than our, you know, just regular Merino. So oh, it great. is 
It is kind of a cool product, and it's also got a very soft hand feel to mm-hmm. it. So, yeah, it doesn't have that stretching out that happens with yeah. Superwash, or it gets that kind of flat feel to it. Ours not have that. Well, and it, you know, because because it's gone through that process, it loses some of the crimp, and so it just doesn't bounce right. back like it used to. So you get the spreading effect when you wash it. Uh, so what fibers are coming from Maine? So in our hand knitting, in our knitting yarn line, um, not really. The fibers really aren't coming from Maine. We first started okay. out. The US they are. Those are all coming from yeah. the U.S. Well, no, sorry. Let me re- retract that. Not the all American fiber lines are coming from yeah. the U.S. Not all the yarn lines are coming from the U.S. We do yeah. use a lot of yarn from Maine farms and Vermont farms, um, local New England farms in our blanket line. Oh, I see. Okay. So, so but we don't market those yarns to the hand knitting market that makes sense. because those those wools actually are a little bit more rugged. Yeah. Um, and they're good for blankets and they, you know, but maybe not right. not exactly what the hand knitting market is looking for. Yeah, I, they're not quite as wearable. They're definitely not as soft. So we went to the merino and, you know, there was yeah. requests for greater softness even in the blanket line, and we do use the merino in our blankets and throws. Oh, that's great. Um, but we also use the traditional, you know, Coriadale and we have Romney, mm-hmm. Shetland, um, in our blankets, and you know, many of those yarns are undyed in their natural gray state yeah. or in a natural undyed brown state in our rare wool collection. Um, so those are, you know, uniquely well suited to that. Yeah. Not especially something somebody might want to hand knit with. Although I do <laughs> keep trying to hand knit with them because I love the way they look. Yeah. Just don't think that I would necessarily want to wear them, but we'll keep working on that. Well, there's certainly a market for, you know, rustic wools for hand knitters, but it's definitely smaller than the market for, you know, soft, soft stuff. There is. And, you know, I love that rustic wool look. And that is the main reason that we developed our All-American collection. Yeah. Because we wanted that rustic farm wool kind of a look, but without the really scratchy feel. So Yeah. So let's talk about the All-American line. You've got it in sport and worsted, and it's made with 100% U.S. grown Ramboulet. Correct. So how did how did that come about? How did you develop the line? Right. So we wanted we had the polished, uh, you know, worsted spun, 100% merino line, and then we wanted something that just had that more rustic, kind of a New Englandy look, but without being super scratchy. You know, a lot of those yarns back in the day that you'd make an Aran sweater out of, say, love the look of it, but kind of itchy to wear, kind yeah. of heavy to knit with. Um, so we did a nice, you know, a worsted weight yarn that has a little bit of alpaca in it to help soften it yeah. and use the Rambouillet fiber that actually is really soft. It's, almost, you know, it's completely wearable, but it's got that nice heathered kind of a look to it. We've added um, a mix of, you know, natural colored alpaca yeah. along with a little touch of black alpaca to add a gray undertone to the base of that yarn, of the worsted weight yarn. And it gives it that nice heathered Shetland kind of a look. That's awesome. But it's all made in America. So that's something we really feature. Our company really focuses on producing high quality handcrafted things that are made in this country. Well, and, and even if they're, you know, if all the parts aren't coming from the country, your focus is very much on on knowing where it's coming from. Yeah, we go to we go to great lengths to try to find out as much as we possibly can about the provenance of everything we yeah. use from the dyes to the fibers to where they're spun. For a small company, you know, it's a great amount of work. Our supply chain is pretty extensive, yeah. but we do know a lot of detail about all of it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. Swans Island is focusing on very much understanding where everything's coming from and in, and 
transparency in the whole process. Like your your dye techniques, you know, even though you're using mostly natural dyes, the process isn't completely natural dyed, so you guys don't call it natural dyed. Like, you know, you're not trying to pull wool over anybody's eyes, um, which I appreciate very much. Like transparency in this process is really important. Yeah, we really do. I mean, we want to be honest. We want people to know where the things come from, and we think it's interesting where they come from. So we put a lot of effort into actually telling the story or, you know, we actually, we go to the farms that are in Maine and we do photo shoots there and try to, you know, these are the actual sheep that we're using. We we don't go to South America and photograph those sheep. It's a little primitive. Um, It's a little prohibitive (laughs) and we haven't been to South Dakota where, you know, the Rambouillet wool comes from uh, the Dakotas. So, you know, we don't get everywhere, but we do try to know the story and we try to convey the story on our website and through our marketing. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not trying to pull the well over anybody's eyes. Yeah. We're trying to expose yeah. the beauty of things that can be produced here and, and where everything comes from. I, I really appreciate the sense of place that Swans Island uses in their marketing and advertising. And I think a sense of place is a really important thing. So where is the yarn being milled? Well, so we use a four or five different spinneries, all of okay. which are in New England. Nice. Um, our worsted spun, you know, the finer merino wools are spun at Jagger Brothers, which is in southern yeah. Maine. So we go down and visit that mill and work with them directly. And we work with Green Mountain Spinnery, which is a small family-run mill in Vermont. Yep, love Green Mountain. Um, yep, so we use we use them to spin a lot of the yarns that we use in our blankets. That's great. Um yeah, so we, and you know, we've got several. We use a, a mill down in Massachusetts that makes our All American. Yeah. With two different yarns in that line. Um, and they're one of the oldest spinneries in the country. You know, still, yeah. their, their primary product that they produce is the yarn that is, I guess it's yarn that's used to make baseballs. Oh, interesting. <laughs> fun, fun fact. Huh. But they make our our woolen spun all-american line down there um so yeah i think it's really cool to still be using you know keeping supporting factories there's so few of them left yeah and to try to tell their story as well because i think people that are interested in fiber arts and handmaking do find that stuff interesting and i think it's terrific that we can you know still do something in this country that not everything has to be imported from yeah. overseas well i've built a whole podcast on hoping that people you know want to hear that those stories <laughs> Right, right. And I'm not opposed to things that come from overseas, too. I mean, I... No, but I want to know the story. Sure. Tell the story. And those stories are great, too. You know, yep. they're wonderful mills all over the world. And I've, I've worked in the Far East. I've worked in China and worked with wonderful people over there. You know, it's... Yeah. They're all just different stories. But I think telling the story behind the process is intriguing. Well, and like, you know, I'm not trying to make any moral judgments about it. I just think that it's important to know where your stuff comes from so that, you know, you can make informed decisions. You know, if you are trying yourself to, you know, if your personal goals are to buy more, you know, U.S. made, then knowing that something is U.S. made is important. Sure. You know, if you're if, you know, you're focusing more on like a global thing, but you still want to know, like, that the people in Bangladesh who were sewing your clothing are getting paid a living wage for them, then you should know that, you know, right. like whatever your your moral goals are, transparency and information are the most important thing for that. Yeah, as much as as much as you're able to do that or to you know make yeah. those economic choices, you know, producing things in this country is more expensive than producing things elsewhere. It is, but I think there's also a trend towards maybe less is more. So maybe we don't need to own yeah. twenty poorly made things 
we'd rather own one really nice, well-made thing. That's that's my goals. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about everybody else, but those are mine. Those are our goals as a company, too. Yeah. I mean, our price points are high, but people that visit our production facility, which is, like I said, a little 1790s yeah. farmhouse on Route 1 in Northport, Maine, um, that's where our wovens are yeah. made. And you can meet the craftspeople that make them. And, um, you know, we'll take you for a tour through and show you the intricacies of how much detail goes into producing those products. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't uh, burn the chaff out of our fiber yeah. chemically yeah. after our blankets are woven. If there's still little bits of grass or little pieces of chaff in the woven blanket, our team will go through and pick them out. Yeah. Tweezers, you know, yeah. fine attention to detail and handcraft. And, and everybody that works in our company, they're really all makers. And everybody is, you know, really appreciative of being part of the team. And they know the impact of what they're adding to the product. And dedicated to the craft. And they take pride. They're very dedicated and they take a lot of pride in it. That's awesome. Um, Which is really nice to see. Yeah. Well, and that comes out in the finished products. You know, people who have that kind of attention to detail because they're in love with what they're doing make a better product. Yes. And everybody, they do enjoy what they're doing. And most people that, you know, a weaver might also uh, be a knitter, of course. Mm-hmm. Not not for the company, but personally, they yeah. they go home and they knit something with with some of our yarns. Mm-hmm. Or, for instance, our head dyer also makes handcrafted children's toys out of wood. So everybody's oh, very cool. hands on. Yeah, uh, really appreciates you know the hands on quality of producing all the things that we make from from the dyeing all the way through to the sewing and stitching and everything that goes into the, the other products that we make. Yeah. Not you know not just not the, hand, yarn. the yarns. Right? Yeah. So speaking about the other products, um, you also have in in the company, Swans Island has commercial knitting, commercially knitted stuff, as well as hand knitting yarn. Yes. Do you design for both? I do. (laughs) That's fun. I wear a lot of different hats. I also do the graphic design and I produce the photo shoots. And, you know, when you're yeah. in a small company, you get to do lots of different things. Yeah. Uh, as, a, as a one-woman company, I do a lot yes. of different things. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, but that, that keeps it fun and interesting. I mean, you know, yeah. I go to the farm and take pictures of, of the sheep and then I also design the yarn lines and I also design the, uh, the finished knit goods. So yeah, we currently awesome. work with a couple of factories also in this country mm-hmm. which it's hard to find you know factories that produce high quality knitwear in this country yeah a lot of things have gone away over time so we have partners that we work with that produce on you know commercial knitting machines mm-hmm. and most of what we do in the knitwear is uh, accessories on un- unsized yeah. yeah hats and gloves and scarves and things like that yeah. so we have two shops two retail shops and an online, you know, a website where we market those things. Mm-hmm. So did the did the commercial knitting side come about because you had that expertise and that knowledge? Yes. Or was it something that they that they wanted from the beginning? Yeah, no, that was really my, uh, you know, my background and expertise allowed us to expand into those areas. So we're really trying to grow the company um, and expand the product lines, you know, yeah. beyond just blankets, which we have successfully done over the last five years. I, I don't know that how sure. many products we've added, but we've added the entire yarn line, which has well over, I believe, 200 individual items. We've got 11 yeah. different lines of yarn that come in many different colorways. Um, we started with nine colors of fingering weight merino, so mm-hmm. that's really expanded. <laughs> and and we've added pillows, and we've added the apparel. Um, yeah, and we're now we're now 
working on doing some uh, collaborative work with some other makers, which oh, that's you know, will feature other handcrafts, um, like some ceramics with some local people that do oh. that, and all, all with our same design aesthetic. But and the uh, sense of place. Yeah, the sense of place. All handcrafted in in you know New England. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and honestly, like all of New England is like the size of my state. So like saying it's you know, New England is, you know, like saying saying something's made in the state of Utah is a completely different thing than saying it's made in the state of Maine. Like, you know what I mean? Maine is so small. Maine is, well, <laughs> compared. Right, right. So, yeah, we, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> we consider New England the, the, our greater yeah. backyard. And, um, you know, most yeah. of our things are made in Maine. I think I think counting New England as local is absolutely fine. That's right. It's still yeah, absolutely. Local. It's still very local. You could easily drive there in a day. Yes, so. I frequently do. <laughs> so Swans Island is using uh, dye techniques that reduce water and energy usage. Can you tell me a bit about the dye processes? Right. So our, like I said, we built um, a dye house about seven mm-hmm. years ago now. And where our place is located, we're not on a town water system. So we use oh. well water. Yeah. Um, we have three very large dye tanks that we custom built and we have several smaller dye tanks and you know depending on the need or what particular product we're working on uh, we can dye anywhere from two pounds to 75 pounds of yarn at a time in these various tank setups so when we first uh, started the dye house we had the main DEP was visiting us regularly testing um, Mm -hmm. checking on our practices and after about five years of that they determined that we are no threat to the environment uh, That's great. Yes. yes. So <laughs> nice to have that official have that official sign off that we're, we're good <laughs> folks. And you know we have to be very conscious of because we are on a well system. We really yeah. can't just use use water uh, without thinking about it. We have two filtration yeah. systems for all the water that comes into our facility because there's okay. a lot of iron in the water when you're dying. Yeah, and that would mess up your mordant. Yes, it does. When you die with natural dyes and, you know, there's iron in the water, it certainly comes out differently. Um, well, in different levels of iron based on the different day, yes. like it would be inconsistent and you couldn't deal with that very well. You can't run a commercial yarn. It does. Early in our, in our early existence, um, we had to learn some of those lessons a little bit the hard way. <laughs> you know, it would rain really hard one day and then we'd be dying whatever the color was the next day and it would come out entirely mm-hmm. different from what it had come out the time before. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we put on more filtration systems, but it still comes out differently. It depends on the actual dye yeah, stuff, it, where it came from, when it was grown. You know, yeah. it does still fluctuate with the weather, with the water. Well, and slight uh, differences are acceptable in the handmade yeah. product. You just can't swing wildly different from day yes. to day. <laughs> what we did over time was we adjusted our expectations. It's not quite the same as when you're dying with a synthetic dye and trying to, yeah. you know, match to a color standard. Yep. So we just broadened our acceptance level of what was acceptable. Yeah. And, you know, when you're when you're knitting with natural dyes, that's just part of what you yeah. have to expect. Each skein is going to be a little bit different. Each dye lot is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. But that's what we actually find lovely about those yarns, that they have this variegation. Um, and there's a richness, certainly, to yeah. the natural dyes that just has a different look to it. So... But anyway, back to the water. You know, we filter the water that goes out of our of our facility mm-hmm. as well. It goes up into a leach field. So you know, the natural dyes. It's all natural components that are yeah. going out into the field. We do use low impact synthetic dyes as well on some of our yarn yeah. lines. But that dye completely exhausts. It's all taken up into the into yarn. The yarn. 
Um, yep. So the water that goes out is clear, you know. Yeah. So we're, we're very conscious of it, though, because we don't have an unlimited supply of we do have an unlimited supply, but we have to be a little bit careful. Yeah, it's a beautiful place and contaminating the water is not great. So no. <laughs> don't want to so do that. We're very, we're very <laughs> conscious about monitoring those things. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you the question that I ask everybody. Uh, in the first season, what would you consider your everyday superpower? Probably my superpower is probably either multitasking or left brain, right brain equality. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't know if that either one of those is specific enough for your no, question. No, sure. But, but it, like explain, like how does okay, this affect so, your daily life? Well, multitasking. Um, I have four kids mm. and I have four kids that all play ice hockey and it's very busy and I <laughs> have a small company that I'm a partner in. Yeah. So, you know, multitasking, going from thinking about business to thinking about getting to the hockey game to managing the hockey team to, for instance, this week, earlier in the week, I went and uh, taught embroidery to 105th graders at our wow. middle school. Uh, that <laughs> sounds all the, nightmarish to me. <laughs> <laughs> keeping all the plates spinning yeah. and keeping everyone Going in the right direction, I guess, might yeah. be a mom superpower, maybe. Yeah. It sounds like maybe it's a necessary survival skill. It, indeed. Yes. <laughs> when you have four kids that are all two years apart, it is definitely oh, a necessary survival skill. And what's the age range on your kids? Well, now they're older, so oh, okay. I have a little bit more time. So I've got uh, 21, 20, uh, soon to be 18, and 15. Whew. So, yeah, only one left at home now. So I've got, you know, more more time to spend, I guess, sitting in front of this computer doing <laughs> interviews. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for talking to me. Well, thanks. Thanks for including me. That was awesome. Thank you. Island has offered us a Phoebe hat and mitts kit in their all-American sportweight Rambouillet wool to give away. It's a super cute stranded hat and mitt set, so you get to play with some of their hand-dyed colors. Next, we'll talk to the ever-lovely Deb Robson about Rambouillet wool. As of the original airing of this episode, Deb is preparing for Plyaway Retreat in Kansas City, Missouri. She'll also be teaching at the Yarn Fest in Loveland, Colorado from April 12th through 15th, and at the Iowa Sheep and Wool Festival in Ames June 16th and 17th. If you get a chance to take a class with Deb, you should absolutely do it. She's a brilliant teacher, and the depth of her knowledge is astounding. So here's Deb. Hey, Deb. Hi, Miriam. Let's talk about Rambouillet today. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. It's a wonderful fleece. The Rambouillet is essentially the French version of the Merino. Okay. So similar qualities, being a fine micron count and a like tight crimp. Yes. But Rambouillet tends to be bouncier than Merino. Okay. What makes it bouncier? Uh, probably the crimp formation. And okay. I'd love to look at it under a microscope sometime and see exactly what that is. But I'm sure it's, it's how the crimp is formed. Okay. That makes sense. So it makes a loftier, bouncier yarn. Mm -hmm. than Merino does. Okay, so Merino was a Spanish breed. Yeah. And the Spaniards basically dominated the wool world with their Merinos for quite a while. And they still do. 
<laughs> well, yeah, they still do, although it's not so much Spain anymore as Australia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because merinos spread around the world and basically took over a lot of places. They like yeah. a drier climate. Okay. Uh, they don't mind some heat and yeah. they work well in large flocks. Okay. So they're pretty easy to care for. Yes, in some locations. Yeah. Well, and in places where it's dry, where you might not be able to grow like, you know, vegetable crops or grain because it's too dry, raising sheep, merino sheep would be a good substitute. Correct. And often sheep of one breed or another are a way to make use of land that doesn't suit anything else because sheep yeah, are really adaptable. Yeah. Now, they've tried to introduce merinos into the United Kingdom on a number of occasions, and there have been some moderate successes, but mostly it's failed. Okay. Yeah. And merinos were brought into the western U.S. for a while and have been in the U.S. in several locations. But the Rambolais, to get back to them, mm-hmm. have thrived in the western U.S., Oh, good. They are one of the prevalent range breeds here. So the Spanish royalty gave the French royalty some sheep, mm-hmm. some merinos, and then the French bred for what they wanted, which is where we came up with the Rambouillet. So did they just crossbreed different, uh, you know, like ends of the spectrum of Merino to get the Rambouillet? Or did they bring something it, else in there? No, they didn't bring something else in. They basically selected from what they had. Okay, got it. Yeah. So it wasn't a crossing. It was more a selection. So it's a selection from within a range of Merino wool from that point in time. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. So where is it? So it was done in France? Yes. Any particular place in France? In Rambouillet. Oh, hey, <laughs> that's where the name comes from. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, we can get up on a map and find it. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So um, what what properties are really great about Rambouillet? Well, that bounciness, be- yeah. along with the fine migrant counts. It's It seems to me, and this is just absolutely a subjective mm-hmm. evaluation, that it's a little more durable than okay. any merinos, although making any generalization about a merino is walking onto thin ice. Well, it's such that's- a prominent breed that I'm sure there are like flocks that, you know, in different places that grow slightly differently or, you know, that have a wide range of... There are many different types of merinos. Yeah. So there are strains and there are actually subbreeds and it's it's very, it's a complex topic on its own. Okay. Um, so a generalization is difficult, but Rambouillet seems to be somewhat more durable. Okay. So uh, my experience with Rambouillet was that it was like buttery soft. Yes. And and definitely like like pillowy because of that crimp structure. Like it's super bounce. What's the staple length like? Tends to be in, uh, I'm just quoting off the top of my head, yeah. two and a half to four inches roughly. Okay, so it could be longer than merinos. Yeah, yeah. It's generally not going to be, uh, three inches is a good range. Yeah. To think about. Okay. Yeah. So you could get a really, really long rambouillet, but... Generally, it's about the same yeah. staple length as a merino. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks, Deb. You're welcome. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes where I've got pictures of Rambouillet sheepies and you can enter the drawing for that gorgeous Phoebe kit from Swan's Island. I've also got a link to Deb's website and to all those places where you can take classes from Deb. After last episode's request for feedback, I got some really good emails. So there will be more conversation about plant-based fibers in season two, thanks to feedback from Charlie and Aspen. These feedback emails also resulted in the creation of a Ravelry group called Friends of Yarn Stories Podcast. So if you'd like to join that, I've got a link up in the show notes there. 
And I'm actually putting a link in my Ravelry profile as well, so you can find it there more easily if you'd prefer. I think it's going to be a great place to have conversations about the podcast and to give me feedback and input on how you'd like to see it go. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. I'll be back in your feed in two weeks with Carita Collins, owner of the Neighborhood Fiber Company. I'm really excited about this one. See you then. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet? <laughs>